Hey there, fellow fabricators, stone shop owners from across the fruited plain and beyond. This is the Fab Lab Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Crowley, tuning in with you yet again for another episode, episode 164, a bit more history. You know, a few weeks ago, I did a topic called A Bit of History, just uh, reviewing the various side hustles that I've started uh, since running a countertop shop kind of teeing up the topic of talking about a side hustle, talking about solving problems in our businesses and turning around and making those solutions that we've created while solving those problems available to other fabricators in the industry to make their lives easier and to create a little bit of uh, extra income on the side outside of your stone shop. And in this episode, I kind of wanted to loop back and tell, I guess, the rest of the story. You know, it's easy when you're telling, um, you know, an origin story when a lot of time has transpired. You can tend to, I don't know, maybe embellish the good things and um, forget the difficult things. And so I wanted to just back up if if possible and give a little bit more context. Um, I guess in some ways, when I look back over my career, perhaps I'm a serial entrepreneur. There could be an aspect. I've started three other companies in addition to writing a book and starting this podcast outside of the countertop shop that I started and ran for 22 and a half years. And so as I was thinking about that, not wanting to you know paint with such broad strokes that I give the impression that it's just so obvious and natural to start a side hustle, I wanted to give a little bit more background, but then bring it back and still end on a high note, on a positive note, on a high level of encouragement to you, fellow fabricator, that if you have solved problems in your business, your stone shop, it is possible that other fellow stone shop owners would pay you for that solution. And if you do it right, it could be an amazing thing. As you're running your stone shop, you get a side hustle going that's just pumping in uh, you know, income with a relatively minimal amount of work, effort, overhead, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And so I want to tell the rest of the story. I want to go back and tell a little bit more of the history of what led up to me starting my stone shop and then starting these various side hustles. But before I get into that, I want to mention a word from our sponsor. What at one time was one of my side hustles, no lift install system. It is now my, I guess my primary hustle. <laughs> so fellow fabricator, um, if you got installers that are carrying 3CM countertops into houses day in and day out, day in and out, day in and day out, that is costing you about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year. Uh, yeah, I'll say it again: fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a year. Most likely, you're sending shop labor to the field at least once or twice a week for those awkward, heavy, fragile countertops to make sure that your two installers on that crew can get it in without breaking it, and maybe without breaking themselves. That alone costs you $1,000 a month. And if you're breaking two countertops a year, which most install crews do and more, you're looking at another five dollars to $7,000 for those two broken countertops when you consider the cost and the opportunity cost of remaking those counters depending on the cost of the material. And then if you are carrying counters up and down steps, even one to three or four steps, that's costing you at least an hour per job site per crew. Just the sheer inefficiency and fatigue-related aspects of carrying those countertops. If you're using a roller ramp and a no-lift, you can eliminate all of that, Fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year in unnecessary labor and breakage expense with the no-lift install system. So if you want to save money, if you want to get more jobs done in less time, if you want to break fewer countertops, buy a no-lift install system. Not to mention if you want to break fewer installers along the way, 
Get a NoLift system. Visit NoLiftSystem.com. Pricing is available on the website and um, a bunch of awesome accessories that make installing easier. That's what we're all about here on the Fab Lab Podcast. How do we make our businesses easier to run? And the NoLift install system is all about making installs easier for your installers and easier on your bottom line. So visit NoLiftSystem.com today. Now back to the origin story. I want to give you a little bit more background in terms of what led up to me becoming a serial entrepreneur at age 22. I started my stone shop at age 22, October 15th, 1998. I was 22 years old, went out on my own with some tools and a little Toyota pickup truck, wanting to do side work. And very quickly, that became a stone shop. I leased my first building, my first shop space in 1999, less than a year later, and uh, started cutting kitchens with a skill saw. And uh, it just kind of unfolded from there. But along the way, I started three other companies. And so I want to back up and kind of tell you what led to that to give you a little bit more context. And then I'm going to loop this around to giving you some encouragement that uh, that I think a side hustle could be a fantastic thing for you. So I want to back up to my childhood. Um, so my grandpa um, was kind of this mythical, iconic figure in our family. And uh, I was very close to my grandpa. He took me fishing, took me hunting. I just spent a ton of time with him. By the time I was like 10, 11, 12, he was retired um, and, and not working. And the uh, opportunities that I had to spend with him allowed me a window into his business career. He had got back from World War II, um, had been a logger, uh, was uh, on the Oregon coast in southern Oregon, and uh, went back into the logging business. And by his early 20s, he and his brother started their own logging company and um, did that for about 15 years and was wildly successful during the 50s and the early 60s, running the logging business, feeding the big building boom that the baby boomers fueled. Um after 15 years of logging, he went into um, selling a beer machine <laughs> and was mildly successful at that, and then moved to Central Oregon and started building houses, decided he wanted to um, start a construction company, and so for a number of years, seven, eight years, he built homes over in Central Oregon in the 70s. Along the way, he got bored. This is maybe where I got this from. He bought a wood stove store basically a stove shop that sold wood stoves and back in the you know the mid 70s that was a pretty common way of heating your house especially in central oregon because it's cold in the winter and so he was running this stove shop and it became very successful and then he had the opportunity timing was amazing he discovered a stove design that was invented by a couple of brothers and he secured the license to build that stove called the earth stove to build that stove i think it was west of the mississippi in canada and all the way to alaska he secured that territory he became the exclusive manufacturer and seller of this product and he started a company called energy alternatives and it was right before the all the chaos in the oil industry where oil just shot up and became unbelievably expensive many many people heated their homes with oil in the mid to late 70s, and he secured the rights to build this wood stove at the perfect time and then named it Energy Alternatives. Talk about a man before his time, about 40, 50 years too soon. Anyway, the timing was perfect, and this stove, this earth stove that they manufactured just absolutely took off and became this like juggernaut, wildly successful. And so that's that's the backdrop of my childhood was hearing these stories, childhood and my youth, hearing these stories about my grandpa, who had just been this successful business owner, who had started business after business after business over the course of his career, 
And so I heard those stories from my grandpa and I heard them from my dad. My grandpa was kind of this iconic, you know, uh, mythical figure, this patriarch of the family that had been in business. And so what I took from that, as I look back over that, I, I had this picture, I had this example, I had this very positive view of somebody who that's just what he did. And so for me, growing up in that setting, starting a business, owning a business was not a novel, out of reach concept. It was a normal concept. My dad had been in in one of those businesses in the stove business, and then my dad had gone into sales. And so he was a commissioned sales rep. So a lot of ways, his income depended upon how hard he worked and what he produced. And so in a lot of ways, that was just the environment that that I, I didn't know any other environment. That was the picture I had of working. Yeah. You get paid based on what you produce, and you start businesses, and in some cases, you start multiple businesses. <laughs> and uh, and that was the picture that I had. That was the example that I saw growing up. Well, that was the first aspect. I had these success stories that I could look to. That was that was just the norm. Well, not only did I have those success stories to look forward to, that that was not out of the you know out of the ordinary. That starting a business wasn't something unique or you know really special. It was just kind of like what you did. I had a whole bunch of opportunities in my youth to do the same thing. Not surprising considering the environment. So my first real business, you know, some of my friends delivered papers, but being the contrarian that I was and still am to this day, I started recycling newspapers. Everybody else had to get up at the butt crack of dawn to go deliver those things, make their change. Um, I, I basically worked on my own schedule, uh, in the mid-80s, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old here in Oregon, the recycling of newspapers, you could get $55 a ton. And it didn't take a ton of newspapers. When you when you condense it, you know, um, the back of a van um, could be three-quarters of a ton of newspapers. Not hard to collect when you could see how, you know, back in the day when a, a Sunday paper was an inch and a half thick, didn't take very long to collect a ton of newspapers. So when I was in like fifth, sixth, and into seventh grade, I made a ton of money going around collecting newspapers. I'd stack them up. I could get my mom once I had a whole bunch of them, and it would justify a trip across town to the, um, I think it was called Far West Fibers at the time. You drive the van onto the scale, they weigh it, you dump it, you weigh it, and I'd get, you know, $40, $50, $60 in cash. And uh, my parents were not of the opinion that you got an allowance. It was like, if you need spending money, uh, old son, get out there and figure out how to make it. You want to go have a paper route? Great. You want to collect newspapers? Great. You want to go mow the neighbor's lawn? Great. I did that too. But my main source of income as a young man, uh, uh, the ripe old age of 10, 11, 12 years old, 13 years old, was collecting newspapers to recycle them until... The recycling boom, you know, save the planet boom hit right around that time, age, you know, 12, 13. And when everybody else and their brother started recycling, because that was the right thing to do, so many people were doing that. And then they had curbside pickup of your recycling. It was my first recession. My first, uh, <laughs> my first economic downturn occurred at age 13. The price of recycled newspapers went from $55 a ton to five. And I was basically out of business. But the good thing was my dad being a sales rep for a company that manufactured industrial graphics, they had these little projects that needed to be done. There was always these one-off projects that needed to be done on these labels. So these industrial labels that my dad sold, 
They had to have adhesive on the back of them. They were typically aluminum. Uh, they kind of looked like stainless steel, but I think they were brushed aluminum. And then they were screened on the surface, and very often they would apply in the manufacturing process these industrial labels to the equipment. Then they'd paint the equipment. But if they painted the equipment, they'd paint the label. And so what I got to do is I would take these hundreds and then thousands and thousands of these labels that would come in a big box. They would come off their manufacturing printing line. And then I would apply the adhesive on the back of the label. And then I would apply a very, uh, it was basically a clear coat um, screen, if you will, this just very thin layer of, of thin film that would be applied to the surface of the label so that once they painted the piece of equipment, they could pull that thin film off and it would expose the, the label and wouldn't get any paint on it. And so from age 13 until about age 15, maybe age, maybe 16, for eight cents a label, I would apply that adhesive and then that thin film on the surface. And I did tens of thousands. I was the main source for my dad's, the company my dad worked for selling these industrial labels. I did all that application. It was very inexpensive for them. And I could do about, uh, well, whatever, $16 an hour. So as a you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old back in the late 80s, I would make on average $16 an hour. That was the equivalent of what I made because I'd figured out this process. I would roll the adhesive out. I'd apply the labels. I'd cut them into sheets. I'd stack them. And then I'd get my glass like pad out. I had this glass surface with an X-Acto blade. And I got so good at that, it was piecework. Once again, just like collecting newspapers, I could do it when I wanted. Depending on how hard I worked and how fast I worked, I could get $55 a ton. Ne- very next job opportunity for me was doing labels at eight cents a piece and I could make upwards of 16 bucks an hour when the minimum wage at the time was probably three or four dollars. It's pretty good money. I got to work what I wanted to. The faster I got, the more money I made. And so there was this story unfolding, if you will. You know, this history was accumulating here as I was being exposed to basically running my own little mini business as well. It continued. I was kind of into... um Loved shop class. I just I loved working with wood. Loved working with my hands. Probably another reason why I got into the stone business. Just absolutely loved it back in the day, early nineties. Everything was hand fabbed, and um, I, I I had the idea. I was in a boot store and I saw this um, boot jack, which was like this little platform had a little elevated, you know, uh, shape to it that you could step on this little platform and stick the heel of your boot into it and then pull your boot off. And it was called a boot jack. And um, I saw one of those at a shoe store and I was like, I bet I could make one of those. So ironically, at my grandpa's wood shop, he was uh, um, had been a carpenter and, and built all kinds of stuff in his wood shop. I built some boot jacks. I wasn't even old enough to drive at this point. I remember I had to have a friend of mine drive me. <laughs> He had a driver's license. He was a year older than me in his little red Toyota pickup truck. But I built some of these boot jacks of this boot store. I want to see, and I asked my friend, hey, let's run down there. I want to see if I can sell some of these boot jacks. We got down there, and my, the, it didn't work out. Well, I went to a bunch of other stores. I wound up going to a, um, an English writing store for um you know horseback riding and i took this little boot jack in there and they're like nah this is so interesting you know i don't know how many places i had stopped at this point but i walk in there i asked the lady hey i'm trying to sell these boot jacks she's like nah i can buy those for so cheap but what i can't get are these english boot jacks and they were instead of being pine you know for the you know for three dollars a little pine 
uh, with a little V cut in it with a little bit of, I don't know, leather tacked to the side to protect the boot. She showed me this very ornate, solid oak uh, boot jack that in addition to just putting your heel into this little like V shape, you could put your entire boot into this opening and it had a rubber pad on it. It was very nice. And she said, I cannot get these made. Do you think you could make one of these? I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll try. Well, I was 15 years old, sophomore, sophomore at Tigard High School, and they had a huge shop, and I was in the shop class. I took that back. She gave me a sample. She gave me one of these English boot jacks that they sold for $50, and she said, if you can make me one of these, I'll pay you 25 bucks a piece. And I was like, wow, I was going to be glad to get $4 a piece out of these little pine versions that I had made, 25 bucks a piece. Awesome. So I proceeded to go back, got some oak, Built a sample, took it back in. I had to actually ask my dad to source some of this rubber pad. He sourced that for me <laughs> and took it back. Said, will this work? And she said, yeah. And I got my first purchase order for six of those English boot jacks, of which then at school during my lunch break and after school before I got on the bus, I got permission to come into the wood shop and I got to make these English boot jacks out of oak. And that was my third sort of piecework experience. So it wasn't until I got a job in high school working at a gas station the first job I had being paid by the hour was like the fourth job I'd had. The first three jobs I had were doing piecework as sort of a subcontractor or an independent you know, business owner. And so when I look back over that history, if you will, there were some things that were present that I think enabled me to start my countertop shop at a relatively young age. That being the example of my grandpa, opportunities to practice being exposed, not just seeing that it could be done, but actually doing it myself on a very small scale. And then having the encouragement. Now, it's very interesting. I'll never forget the day that I decided to actually go into business for myself. I had been thinking about it. I had been doing a ton of side work the summer of 1998. It was the summer my wife and I were planning to get married. And um, she was back home in Montana getting ready for our wedding. And I was at home working in a stone shop, but I'd had a number of buddies who had quit that same stone shop and started their own companies and they were busy. And so I'd work all day by the hour. And then at night I'd go do piecework by the linear foot. I'd, I'd go and grind shape and polish, you know, do a hand shape and full bull nose. Um, or I'd go out into the field and install by the square foot. And I was making so much money by, you know, doing piecework. It's this, this, this calculus began to emerge well, if I can make as much money in two hours doing piecework as I make in eight hours you know, working by the hour, hmm, perhaps I go out and I start doing piecework full-time. I'll do side work as a full-time gig. That was my idea. My side hustle was doing it by the foot, linear foot or square foot. So that became my plan that summer as I was saving money, getting ready to get married. But I was back and forth. It's like, is this a great idea to, you know, to... <laughs> to quit my secure job. I'd worked there for five years, quit my, right on the eve of getting married, but I had gotten all my contractor license work done over the course of that summer just as a as a, a preliminary step in the event that I brought myself to pull the trigger on this. Um, and, but I was really nervous about that. And um, But the, the, the deciding moment, my wife and I uh, had just got back from our honeymoon and got married, and the company that I worked for had been talking all summer about a bonus program, basically a profit-sharing program. And they'd explained it to us. They'd introduced it to us. They had talked to us about it. And and I think my inclination was just to maintain the security of a steady job. I could do side work on the side. And then, you know, that was probably the best option for 
for my my new wife and I uh, as as we began our life together. But then we came in. They called a meeting, and the manager came in, and he's like, "Well, guys, I got bad news." This is a shop foreman. He said the management of the company has decided that they're not going to do the bonus program. They're not going to do the profit-sharing po- program. And there was maybe, I don't know, 10, 10, 12 of us on this crew, you know, working in the shop and working out in the field. And there was just like this, this gasp of like, what? After all this talk, after all this discussion, after all this hope that there's going to be this bonus program, this profit-sharing program, now they pull it back. And so somebody asked, why? Why, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? And the shop manager basically responded with, well, some of the people in management think that if you guys get a big lump sum at the end of the quarter, your incentive to show up the next day will be gone, and some of you won't show up for work the next day. And it it was the most insulting thing I had ever heard. And I literally walked out of that me. I was so enraged. I was so furious over the insult to our character that you you know we don't have enough you know commitment to our positions that we would work really hard to generate the profit receive the reward for doing the hard work and then we would for, we wouldn't show up the next day when we have the opportunity to make the reward again it it was it didn't make any sense it was the most absurd it was the most insulting thing you could have possibly told somebody like me who is used to doing piecework who is used and I was already doing work on the side as it was I walked I literally walked out of that meeting in the lunchroom, I walked out through the shop, hang a left out the back door into the boneyard, and I sat down on an A-frame with a bunch of remnants, and I called my dad, and I'm like, I'm telling him this. I'm like, I and I recounted this story. I can't believe this. I'm outraged, and my dad was like, it's time for you to start your own company, man. What do you, why? You got your contractor's license already ready to go. Everything's in place. And I'm like, yeah, but, but, and my dad said, you know, Aaron, you got, you got nothing to lose. You're 22 years old. You've got this skill. You got five work, five years worth of experience. If it doesn't work out, I'm sure this company will hire you back. You've been a good employee. And literally that was the moment that encouragement was all I needed. And probably within a day or two, I came in and I turned in my two weeks notice and two weeks later, I was self-employed on October 15th, 1998. So those were the things. That's the, the rest of the story. That's the uh, the full history of how I was kind of predisposed, fellow fabricator, to not just start a countertop shop, but to start the edge right, to start Fabricator's Friend and to start No Lift, to then write a book and start a podcast and do coaching on the side here. I mean, I got, I got side hustles off my side hustles. <laughs> so I want to share that with you just so you have a better idea in the event that in the last episode where I talked about a bit of history, talking about the side hustles that I started with my stone shop, that I, I, didn't, I didn't play it off as though it was so matter of fact and so assumed and so obvious that anybody and everybody should go out and do that. What I want to do now is pivot off of my own story the picture that I had with my grandpa, the opportunity I had to practice, and the encouragement I got from my dad, and basically reorient that towards you, fellow fabricator. You're already in business. You already have an example. You are your in yourself an example. But if that's not enough, I just want to remind you that many, 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 many of the products that you currently use right now were started, were developed, and launched by fellow fabricators just like you, granite grabbers, sink savers, seam setters, install carts, sink clips, cooktop bags, chip fillers, 
Stone sleeves. Those are just a few of the products that you are currently using in your shop right now that were developed by fabricators just like you. So, fellow fabricator, it's not out of the ordinary. It's not unusual. It's normal for creative, hardworking, resourceful business owners like you to solve problems and then turn around and make those solutions available to the fellow fabricators in the industry. So fellow fabricator, there is no shortage of examples for you to follow in terms of taking that solution that you may have created and making it available to the rest of the industry. That's number one. Number two, your opportunity to practice fellow fabricator, if you're already in business, I'm telling you, (laughs) 99.9% chance that the business that you are currently in is going to be way, way, way harder than any side hustle you start introducing a solution to the rest of the industry. So I'm telling you, if you can run a stone shop, fellow fabricator, I'm telling you, you can create and introduce a solution that's going to benefit your fellow fabricators. And you're going to be able to do that and generate a lot of income with a lot less work and a lot less effort and a lot less blood, sweat, and tears. And then number three, just the encouragement. Fellow fabricator, that's the role of the Fab Lab podcast. That's why I do what I do. It's just to encourage you. is to be here. I'm your cheerleader. I'm here telling you, you can do it. You can build a business that runs in your absence. You can build a business that's profitable and gives you a life outside of work. Now, perhaps you take some of that time that you've created by developing processes within your business, and you then take that time to invest in a solution, developing, packaging, crafting, thinking through a business model that would allow you to introduce that solution to the rest of the industry. And then you do it again, and then you do it again. So that's my encouragement to you, fellow fabricator. You can do it. I guarantee, in fact, I will go as far as to say the industry needs you to do it because there's so much innovation. There's so much collective experience out there of fabricators just like you who have run up against problems, solved the problem, created a solution, and you're using it in your business right now. And uh, and you may be able to make that available to the rest of the industry and make running a stone shop just a little bit easier for the next guy down the street or the next guy across the country. So fellow fabricator, I hope you were encouraged by that. Remember, the best business model in the world is the business model that's business to business. So you've already got that. Check. Now, is the solution that you've created, can you package it in such a way that it's either a repeatable It's either a consumable or a subscription-based product or service where you can, once you earn the fellow fabricator's business, it comes back to you in that lifetime value of the customer where just over time they continue to buy, they continue to buy, they continue to buy. That benefits you. That is an easy business model. And lastly, it's not constrained by geography. You're going to build something that can be accessible. It can be economically delivered to anybody in the industry um, at a cost point that, you know, at at a cost that, or a price point that makes it make sense. And so that's the best business model in the world right there, fellow fabricator. I'm telling you, you can do it. Lots of examples. Plenty of people have done it. You can too. You've already practiced, fellow fabricator. If you're running a stone shop, I was thinking about this this morning. Long story. I won't, I won't explain why, but I was thinking about our old general manager. He had come out of the hotel. He had run a $100 million hotel business for a decade then he retired, and then he came out of retirement to run my little countertop shop. And he'd had a pretty extensive and varied career prior to that. And he said, unequivocally, running my little $2.5, $3 million countertop company was the most difficult business he had ever been involved in, in terms of the dynamics that you have to contend with on a daily basis. Fellow fabricator, if you've never been in another industry, if you've never been in another business, 
you don't know how hard it is to run a successful countertop shop. And so if you're doing that, you have accomplished something of immense proportions. And if you can run a countertop shop, I am telling you, I'm here to I'm here to encourage you. You can run a side hustle too. So fellow fabricator, I hope you were encouraged by this uh, little bit more of the story, uh, a little bit more of the history, um, just to give you some context. Is it easy? No. But is it possible? Absolutely. So fellow fabricator, I hope this finds you well. Make sure you tune into the next episode of the Fab Lab podcast. And in the meantime, if you'd like to reach out, if you'd like some more encouragement, make sure you check the show notes out. You can visit AaronCrowley.com. Go to the Work With Me page. Fill out a form. I would love to connect with you if you would like a little bit more one-on-one encouragement. I'll put that link in the show notes for this podcast as well. Until next time, fellow fabricator, happy fabricating.